As we continue our study of the Christian faith, let's confess a summary of what the Bible teaches about how we come to know our sin and misery. If you turn in the back of your songbooks to page 872, we'll confess together our faith. Page 872. Remember that to know the comfort of the, the gospel, you have to know three things how great your sin and misery are, how you're set free or delivered from your sin and misery, and how you are to thank God for such deliverance. So we're going to start with what we must know about ourselves, about our sin and misery. Congregation, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 19. We'll read verses 16 through 26 of Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 16 through 26, page 980 in your pew Bibles. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives.
brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, one of my seminary professors sometimes used the expression little Jack Horner religion. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of that religion, but you do meet it wherever you go, little Jack Horner religion. It really is the most common and most universal false religion around, covering all times and all cultures and all peoples. Little Jack Horner religion. Maybe you know the Mother Goose rhyme, Little Jack Horner. The story of a prankster who'd go around doing bad things and whenever he was done, he would talk about how good a guy he was. Little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating a Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I. That's the false religion of the human race. It comes by a lot of different names, Islam, Buddhism, atheism, but it really comes down to this, that I'm basically good, and no matter what bad things I do, I'm still a good person. And that's what the gospel of comfort Confronts that gospel of comfort that teaches us that God saves sinners to serve Him. That's the good news. And to embrace that good news, you have to disembrace or disavow or throw away from yourself what a good boy am I religion, little Jack Horner religion, the most common religion in all the world false religion in all the world over all times and cultures and ages. We'll never believe that gospel. God saves sinners to serve him unless God confronts us with the truth of our sin and misery. Remember how the bad news is an essential part of the good news. We'll never run to Christ unless we first realize we're in big trouble. First we see here how God is at war against our self-deception. And secondly, we see God's tool of self-evaluation. And thirdly, God's gift of self-awareness. God targets our self-deception. He's at war against self-deception. Which is really perfectly demonstrated in the rich young ruler. One day... A young man came up to Jesus with an important question. We know the man was rich. It says so in this passage. Luke says he was a ruler. He was a leader in Israel. He really had everything going for him. Power, wealth, and youth. One more thing. He was very good. At least outwardly. He was very moral. He lived a very honest, decent life outwardly. So he had everything, everything going for him. Everything must have looked up, everybody must have looked up to him, praised him. Here's the model of a man, the man to model. And you can imagine if you're constantly heaped up with praise, you begin to believe it yourself. You're a good man. He had everything except for certainty of salvation and assurance of eternal life. That was the thing that was missing from his heart. 
So he asked, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus immediately saw the man's main issue, and he's going to address that question as the engagement wears on. He confronts it. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. He thought of himself as a good man able to save himself. He just needed some information from a good teacher. He needed some counseling. But he could do it himself. I don't need salvation. I need information. I'm missing some good deed in my life that will just finish the good package, the package of the good me. Put a bow on it and make me ready for heaven. What's the thing I'm missing? Can you tell me? And this man, like the rest of the human race, is self-deceived. He imagines he's a good person and that he has the power to do whatever good thing it takes to go to heaven. And that's why he comes for information, not salvation. He comes not to die to himself, but to have more of himself. He hasn't given up on himself at all. He still believes in himself. And that's the trouble of little Jack Horner religion. Man is relentlessly a self-lover, believing in himself. And so Jesus put the law of God to him. Because the law is God's tool to expose our evil hearts. How do you come to know your sin and misery out of the law of God? The law is God's favorite tool to tear down self-deception. As I mentioned last week about my own life, God had to take me, rescue me from thinking of myself as a basically good kid who sometimes does wrong things to a terribly wicked and depraved kid who could sometimes look good. I needed to be saved from myself. I was under the wrath of God. Well, God uses the law to do this. Paul said, no one can be justified by the works of the law. Romans 7, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So that's really what we're at. How do you come to know your sin and misery? The question asked, how do you come to know your misery? But that's a short form for what we talked about in question and answer two. How do you come to know your sin and the misery that results? You might say, what do you mean, know your sin and misery? It's obvious. Nobody's perfect. Everybody already knows that already. You know it just from living. You know it from the news. You see what's going on in the world. The shootings, the anger, the theft, the divorce, corruption among corporate executives, war, and on and on. What do you mean, how do you come to know? It's obvious to everybody. You see, if you generalize... There's sin in this world. Everybody agrees. Yeah, there's a lot of sin in this world. There's a lot of bad stuff. But if you come up to me and ask you, how do you come to know your sin and misery? And you probe that a bit with me, 
You'll soon see that unless the Holy Spirit has done a special work of showing me how great my sin and misery are. You'll soon see that I think of myself as a good person who makes mistakes. There's bad out there, but it's not really in me. Not in the depths of my being. Now we've become become professionals at hiding our sins under excuses and explanations and self-justifications to make it clear that it really wasn't me. Yeah, I did that, but I didn't mean to. Deep down, it's not in me. It's not in my heart. I didn't mean to. How often don't we use that? That that bad thing doesn't live in me, not in my heart. Or my, my stress level made me do it. Yeah, my circumstance, not me. Yeah, I may lose my temper a lot, but I can't really help it. You know, I, it's really not me. And, and I may drink too much and, and hurt people by it, but that's not really who I am. I'm really not a bad guy. And, and that kind of self-deception and lack of self-awareness is not only true of people outside the church, non-religious people. Sometimes people inside the church, like this rich young ruler, sometimes religious people, congregation, are among the most self-deceived and the most convinced of their goodness. A little religion can be a very dangerous thing, like the rich young ruler. You have enough religion in your life to know the rules of behavior, enough Bible smarts to make yourself look good, to really convince yourself that you're a good person. It's the other guy that's bad. And like the Pharisee, we can get so caught up in rules and procedures and outward appearance that we can, we can become the most immune to the reality of our own sin. I can become immune to the knowledge of my sin by a little dose of Christianity. Just enough to make me look good and make me think I am good. I think Jesus would tell you that some of the hardest, most self-deceived and self-righteous people in the world are in the church. That's a scary thing. Some of the hardest, most self-deceived and self-righteous people in the world are in the church. And God means to go to war against our self-deception to rescue us. Now, what's his tool of self-evaluation, secondly? What tool does he use to go to war against our self-deception and to expose our sinfulness? Well, the true experiential knowledge of sin and misery is not natural and it's not normal. We don't just sort of know that about ourselves. We're blind to that. It's part of our spiritual blindness. We're immune to that. It's part of our depravity. And no, it takes the special work of God, the Holy Spirit, to show me who I really am. And to make me run to Jesus for help, for rescue. And the Holy Spirit uses the law of God. The Holy Spirit takes the bright spotlight, the bright searchlight of God's law, 
shine on us and show all the dirt that's there in your soul and on your life, in your feelings, in your desires, in your thinking, in your attitudes, in your motives, in your words, your actions. His word judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It can go where no other sword can go. Hebrews 4, verse 12. To show me just how evil and perverse and wicked I really am. So Jesus began to minister the law to this rich young ruler, this self-deceived religious person. And the way he did that was through a process of narrowing the law, narrowing the focus of the law. First, he started with the law of God very broadly. And then he narrowed it down to some commandments, and then he narrowed it down to one commandment to hit home where this man's idol was sitting in his life. He starts very broadly. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And you know that's true. If you keep the commandments of God perfectly, you will enter heaven by your own righteousness. If you can be perfect and flawless in your emotions, in your thoughts, in your words, and your deeds, inwardly, outwardly, all the time, And commit no sins of commission and no sins of omission. Your own personal perfect obedience will get you to heaven. So keep the commandments, he said. Rich young ruler, which ones? And now Jesus narrows it. Jesus asked him, be more specific, please. And so Jesus was. And he mentions the second table of the law. And the summary of the second table of the law. He mentions the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And then, the summary of the second table of the law, which concerns mainly how we are to relate to our neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He could have ministered to this rich young ruler through the first table of the law, which concerned mainly a man's relationship to God, and he'll get there. But the presenting issue in this man's life has to do with the second table of the law. That, that's the presenting issue. That's the, the upfront issue in his life. And so Jesus goes there. And, and maybe it sounds unbelievable to you, but this man asserts, apparently with full confidence, all these have kept Yep, okay, yeah, yeah, I did all that. What am I still missing? What do I still lack? Little Jack Horner religion, what a good boy am I. He's so focused on the narrow, outward, physical appearance, the sins of commission, he simply cannot see himself as he really is. Brothers and sisters, it's a warning to us how trapped we can be in a mindset of self-righteousness. That we actually are convinced we're doing pretty much everything right. 
Are you in that spot? You're, I'm not perfect, you'll say. Yep, that's easy. But you're pretty much convinced you're doing everything right and the problems are with other people. All these I've kept, what's missing? Mindset of self-righteousness. You know, if everybody was like me, the world would be a pretty good place. It's too bad that you're here to make things worse. Mindset of self-righteousness. So Jesus answers his question by going even narrower in his ministry of the law. 21, if you would be perfect then. If you want perfect obedience, if you want to finish the job of perfection, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And with the law of God and with this command specifically, he nails the idol of this man's heart. Wealth. Love of wealth. He was so in love with his possessions that he just couldn't part with them. He was so worried about his wealth that he was very stingy about giving to the poor. Now we see that he really didn't love his neighbor because he wouldn't share sacrificially with them. And therefore, he doesn't love God either because he has an idol that he trusts in besides God. He's got a first commandment issue, first great commandment, loving God issue, and a second great commandment, loving neighbor issue. That's why, brothers and sisters, the summary of the law is such an important minister of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Do you hear that? God wants you to love him with all your being, all the time, in all you do. A hundred percent of yourself, a hundred percent of the time, in 100% of your activities. And when the Holy Spirit ministers that law to your heart, you say, I have fallen short. And he wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. To give him or her at least much attention as you give to yourself. It's a great tool of self-evaluation when the Spirit is present. Do I really love God with everything I am and have? And am I willing to part with anything I have, no matter what it is, when God calls me to? Do I love him with all I am and all I do all the time? Do I love my neighbor as myself so I'm willing to put his needs ahead of my own as Christ did? So how well am I doing in my relationship with God and with my neighbor? Am I doing perfectly or am I failing? And I'm, here's the question. If I'm failing in not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength and not loving my neighbor and myself, and I'm failing in that, what is that called? 
Is that just missing something or is that hatred? If I'm failing in the two great commandments, what's that called? Does that mean I'm hating instead? Or is there some middle ground? Not perfect love, but not hatred either. Just doing the best I can. We'll see in a moment it's called hatred. But to this man who thinks entering the kingdom of God is quite easy, just give me one more thing to do and I'm in. Tell me, Jesus, just one more thing to do and I'm in. Easy peasy. To him, Jesus teaches exactly how easy it is to enter the kingdom of God and the disciples he teaches as well. Jesus said, truly I say to you, with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people play with the exegesis of that. That's a silly statement. The eye of a needle must have been the small gate. When the city gates were closed at night and you still needed to come in, there was a small gate. And to get through it was hard and your camel had to go down on its knees and you had to take everything off and he had to sort of crawl through and you walked in after him. That's, no, that's not the eye of a needle. Because Jesus says with man this is impossible. By the eye of a needle, he means the eye of a needle, a knitting needle, or a sewing, a darning needle. Oh, it's easy to enter the kingdom of God. Just try. Just try harder. No. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And remember that in Israelite religion, The rich were seen as especially blessed, closer to the kingdom than anybody else. If the rich can't, nobody can. And that's what they say, the disciples say, greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Brothers and sisters, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to enter the kingdom of God. That's how far away you are from being good enough to go to heaven. It is easier to go somewhere, find a camel, ask your mom for the little needle, and stuff that camel through the eye. I can't get a thread through the thing. What about a camel? It's easier to do that than for you to go to heaven. That's how good you are. That's how good I am. And it's through this tool of self-awareness or self-evaluation. Am I really loving God? If not, what's that? Am I really loving my neighbor as myself? If not, what's that? That God gives us the gift of self-awareness through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's called hatred. Hatred. And to be saved, this is where we need to go. With man, this obedience that God requires of us is utterly and absolutely impossible. I can't do anything good enough to enter the kingdom. I can't do anything good, period. 
not good in God's eyes. Whatever others might see and say about me. What matters is what God sees and says. And he says, impossible. No, I cannot live up to all this perfectly, says answer five. And the reason that I don't live up to loving God and loving my neighbor as I ought is because I hate them. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And no human being can ever reach this level of self-awareness that I'm a God-hater and a neighbor-hater, a God-hater and a people-hater. Deep, deep inside, that's what I'm made of. Nobody can reach this level of self-awareness apart from the law of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working through the law. It's a gift of God to come to that awareness. And only when I receive that gift of awareness will I run to Jesus for refuge and be saved. That's why I need that. It takes the Bible to confront and dismantle little Jack Horner religion. The Bible says that in Romans 1, we're haters of God by nature. And the Bible says in Titus 3 that outside of Christ, we hate one another and are hated by others. And we don't just lack love. We hate. We don't just miss a few ingredients in our service to God and neighbor. We hate. We don't just not give as faithfully and sacrificially as we should to those in need. We hate. We're not just impatient. I hate you too much to wait for you and take time for you. Think, take every sin, any sin, and peel off the outside layers, and in the center is a seed called hatred. Take whatever sin it is. We, we, we minimize it. We explain it away. We make it sound less bad than it is. But deep, deep inside, I'm hating God and hating my neighbor. That's at the center. What do I lack? You lack love for God and neighbor. What's my problem? It's what I have, hatred. I'm so committed to myself that when push comes to shove, I will destroy another person to protect myself. I will turn my back on God in order to have my own way. That's, that's me by nature. And that's where the gospel of Christ takes us, to run to Jesus and enjoy him as our comfort, our security, our trust. And to do that, I have to see what's really living in my heart. How badly I need somebody to take away my sin and give me a new heart. And that's the good news. It's impossible for man, but it's possible with God. He sent his son to give us an alien righteousness. Jesus lived a perfect life, flawless nothing lacking of love for God and neighbor. He sent his son to live that life and to give to me an alien righteousness that comes from another person when I trust in him. But Jesus did more. 
When we believe in Jesus, he also gives us a new heart so that we can learn to love again. And Paul can even say, remember that? Romans 15, 14. I know that you're full of goodness. Not by your own works, but by the good work of God in Jesus Christ, making me what I am not by nature, giving me what I do not have by my own works. And that's holy and purely the gift of God, the miracle of salvation. It's all found in Christ alone, who went to the cross with my hatred nailed to his own body and soul on the tree until it destroyed him. To pay the price for me, to take away my guilt and rose again with new power to plant in me a new life, life in the spirit. To plant in me the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What's impossible for man is possible with God. And so, let's not go where the rich young ruler went. He walked away from the Savior, sorrowful, choosing to hang on to his idol of self instead. I'd rather have me, and he walked away. That's not the way. Let's stop believing in ourselves. Each one of us, let's turn away from our own performance. Let's stop exalting ourselves and overestimating our own goodness. And let's turn to Jesus Christ and exalt him. His death for our sins, his resurrection for a new life. So when God uses his law to nail my life to the wall, Expose me for whom I am, who I am. Rather than walk away from our Savior, let's fall down before him and say, what must I do to be saved? And he'll say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for rescuing us from ourselves. Thank you for kindly, graciously showing us who we are by nature and giving us Christ to make us who we are not. Lord, unlike the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful for he had great possessions, give us grace to run away from ourselves and to run to you for rescue so that we might live in the true love of God and neighbor. Oh, give to us that gift. We know with us this is impossible, but with God, this is possible. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.